Greetings, listeners. This podcast you're about to listen to is brought to you by the Network in Canadian History and Environment, a not-for-profit public history organization that publishes new research on the intersection of nature and history in Canada. They publish blogs, research articles, newsletters, and this very podcast you're about to listen to, and they can't do it without your support. If you enjoy this podcast and all the great work of the Network in Canadian History and Environment, consider becoming a supporter. Head on over to niche-canada.org support and make a donation today. Toxic Legacies on Indigenous Lands Water pollution um, happened as a result of leakage into uh, and, and tailings into the Serpent River watershed, and this caused uh, documented problems with fish spawning, uh, radioactivity, um, uh, trapping, the ability to fish. The history of uranium mining and its consequences at Elliott Lake on the lands of Serpent River First Nation. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 75 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. The nuclear arms race and global confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union in the mid-20th century brought new settler pressures on the resources of Indigenous peoples in Ontario. At Elliott Lake, on the territories of the Serpent River Anishinaabek, the Canadian government and private corporations sought to extract uranium and other mineral resources in part of what historian Leanne Letty calls Cold War colonialism. The mining activities at Elliott Lake produced toxic hazards with consequences for the people of Serpent River First Nation who lived with those environmental legacies. Traditional practices of fishing and hunting among the people of this homeland were jeopardized by the extractive industrial activities of the settler government and private corporations. In response, members of Serpent River First Nation resisted and fought for remediation of their traditional territories a fight that continues to this day. This complicated history is explored in Leanne Letty's new book, Serpent River Resurgence, Confronting Uranium Mining at Elliott Lake, published by University of Toronto Press. I caught up with Leanne to learn more about this history. My name is Leanne Letty. I'm Anishinaabekwe from Serpent River First Nation. I grew up in uh, Elliott Lake, Ontario. Um, my mother is uh, Anishinaabekwe as well. And my father is a uh, settler miner who himself comes from uh, a mining family, a mining tradition. So um, I'm also an associate professor in the Department of History at Wilfrid Laurier University. And uh, thanks, Sean, for having me here today. Thanks for joining us, Leanne. I'm really excited to get to talk about your book um, and to introduce it to listeners uh, to the podcast. So maybe to get us started, uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, Elliott Lake and Serpent River, uh, what the environments are like this in this area? Uh, and then we'll start to get into uh, some of the history that you explore in this book. 
Yeah. So the territory that we're talking about is Anishinaabe land uh, in the Robinson-Huron Treaty area. And so more specifically, we're talking about the North Shore of Lake Huron. Um, so it is uh, shield country, uh, breathtaking colors in the fall, um, the landscape of, of waterways, uh, lakes and rivers. Um, Elliott Lake is a, as a town is a relatively new settler uh, development arising from the 1950s and is situated on Anishinaabe tra traditional territory. Um, and the communities are both linked by the uh, Serpent River watershed, which is key to the, the study that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So this, this region of Ontario was um, sort of the object or the subject of interest in mining, um, became the site of uranium mining in the 1950s, uh, beginning in the 1950s, and then um, an acid mine site as well that you explore in the book. Um, and you cover some of the ways in which mining uh, uh, damaged these environments. Um, so what were what were the effects of mining on the Elliott Lake area and how did it affect the lives of the people of Serpent River First Nation? So you're right that uranium mining began in the context of uh, the Cold War period. Uh, so few environmental protocols um, and Canada, how this all developed was that Canada entered into a large uranium contract with the United States uh, and the area now known as Elliott Lake was chosen as uh, a mining uh, area based on the stakes that were claimed. Um, and then a town site developed to house families that came to work uh, in the mines, including my father's family, as I mentioned earlier. And so the, the, uh, the effects of mining were two-pronged on Serpent River First Nation. So the first is that the health of the watershed uh, was diminished as a result of uranium mining and uh, in particular dam failures and tailings management site problems and things like that. Um, and then also, on the other hand, uh, Indian Affairs facilitated the establishment of a uranium acid plant, uh, or sorry, a sulfuric acid plant uh, mm -hmm. on the reserve. Um, and this was related to, to mining as a secondary industry. So water pollution um, happened as a result of leakage into uh, and, and tailings into the Serpent River watershed. And this caused uh, documented problems with fish spawning, uh, radioactivity, um, uh, trapping, the ability to fish. Uh, and there were also settler tourism operators who had actually communicated with provincial authorities about their concerns. Uh, and we can see um, as historians, internal provincial um, government documentation of these issues as well. Um, and even a report about radioactivity that um, that was actually kept from the public for two years uh, in the early 1960s. So these were problems that were that were well known um, by settler scientists and uh, and mining companies and uh, government officials. Um, but this wasn't necessarily communicated to the community, uh, although elders uh, remember problems with uh, beaver harvesting. Uh, elders shared with that, that with me about their families, uh, which was something still that people relied on still at that time. Um, they remember fish tasting poorly, uh, a general decline in the river system. Uh, and there were also families that relied on the river for their water. Um, and uh, it wasn't until 1976, actually, that a letter uh, from the government warned chief and council not to let any anybody who took water from the river to, to drink it. Um, so as, as I mentioned earlier, this was about more than a decade after the water quality report was released. Mm-hmm. 
So as my grandmother said about bringing her children to swim in the river, um, you know, here we found out that there was radium-226 in that river. Um, and that was something that was not known uh, in the community. Uh, and it in impacted a lot of the ways that people interacted uh, with the water on the territory, even though they weren't necessarily, sh you know, people didn't share that, that knowledge with them. That's, you know, scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, those changes were still apparent. Um, and at the same time, the Naranda acid plant, which, as I mentioned, was a sulfuric acid plant, caused problems in the middle of the reserve. So that's, that's where it was located uh, on, the, on the shore of Arid Bay of Lake Huron. And it caused deforestation, uh, water pollution, uh, and air pollution in the community as well. So when the plant closed, uh, the site was not remediated and contaminated rubble was present uh, throughout that area where the plant was. Mm -hmm. um, and along with, you know, buildings and, and that later had to be blown up in the late 1960s and then not cleaned up again until the late 1980s. And then there's there's an episode in the book where you discuss some of the I'm gonna I'm gonna call it remediation, but that's in big quotation marks that the Canadian government initiated at the um, at the acid mine site, but it was used as an exercise for the military. Yeah, it was uh, it was done uh, between D and D uh, and and the Department of Indian Affairs, and uh, they they brought in one of the the field squadrons to it was a training exercise for live <laughs> fire. Uh, and it actually, as one elder told me, it took them a couple of goes uh, to get the, the, the building to, to actually come down. Uh, they joked somebody was heckling, you know, bring in the Air Force. Um, but, but in all seriousness, um, mm -hmm. it actually, what it did do was it uh, blew that contamination across a wider surface area, as you might expect in, mm -hmm. a, in an explosion situation, um, and, and left a lot of that debris there. Uh, and so in, in all seriousness, this uh, caused uh, lots of, of problems in the community in that, that as I mentioned, it's, it's um, located on Arid Bay. Uh, it's uh, very close to a, a lot of homes, um, not far from the, the community center. Um, and so this is, this is really quite a serious thing that was happening in the middle of the community uh and you know parents trying to keep their children from playing in the rubble like this mm -hmm. was this was really uh, a very serious issue in in the middle of uh in the middle of of the the reserve and so it was something that then took so that that happened in um uh, the late 1960s it took until mm -hmm. the late 1980s for there even to be another remediation after that time so um these are really long-standing concerns when you're talking mm -hmm. about the lives of families uh, you know, experiencing this kind of contamination. It, it was a really shocking part of the book, um, but illustrative of of a profound disconnect between the um, the colonial government uh, and the people who live in the territory. Um, so, so the acid mine site and the uranium mining activities were supposed to bring prosperity to the community, but they ended up leaving this damaging legacy of environmental degradation. Um, so from your view then, what, what does the study reveal about the relationships among ecology, resource extraction, and colonialism in Canada? 
So you're right that one of the big reasons that the asset plant was established on the reserve was was economic. So jobs and also revenue, leasing Mm -hmm. revenue for the community. Um, And so this is tied up in colonial patterns of uh, leasing Indigenous land to help pay for First Nations. And I'll put this in quotation marks, even though people can't see this upkeep, right? Mm -hmm. So encouraging wage work that would then in turn uh, reduce government spending on First Nations and also assimilate people, especially in this context, we're talking about men uh, to work in, uh, you know, waged environments, um, uh, waged working conditions, and and relatedly, then also also less reliance on older uh, traditional ways as well. Um, so. Furthermore, we also see that this lease for the Naranda acid plant was tied to an old lumber lease for land uh, that had not been fully returned to the community uh, once that lease had ended. Um, as a result of, again, as, as you mentioned, those the, the fact that Indian Affairs and the federal government generally were, you know, in, in the, the, the moderators of these processes. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's key here. Um, so again, these are these transactions are framed by the colonial relationship um, uh, of the time, and and they they were controlled through Ottawa and Indian Affairs, and so that's key to remember the ties between uh, extraction and colonialism. And so in the larger picture here, um, we can see similar patterns that led to development of of what is now Canada as a country. So these extractive activities on Indigenous territories, which further marginalize Indigenous people, um, and that assist in the development of the nation state. And so these activities continue to this day and are hallmarks of economic development plans of various levels of government. Um, And in the case of uranium extraction at Elliott Lake, of course, this is also tied to Cold War security and larger international forces. And I could see in the narrative that you weave in this book, um, this story about an environment being rapidly transformed with all kinds of of unforeseen consequences or consequences that should have been anticipated um, that have these lasting impacts and legacies for the people who live in the communities where resources are extracted. Uh, And so it seems like you're telling a bit of a story about a disconnect between extractivism and its long-term effects on an ecosystem in a homeland and really different perspectives. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot after reading your book and reading Brittany Luby's book um, uh, about Lake of the Woods, where similar phenomena occurs of short-term resource extraction with long-term ecological consequences for the people who live and have lived uh, since time immemorial in these territories. Um so I guess there isn't so much a comment as a question as a comment there, um, but it is starting to weave together. I think a story about colonialism in Canada, and I wonder if you could comment about what you're seeing more broadly across Canada, because I know you've 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 worked with other historians of mining in Canada as well. Are there are, are there similar phenomena that you see to the case at Elliott Lake? I, I think that's one of the most striking things that I have seen is is the similarity. Obviously, the homelands are distinct. The people whose homes these are are distinct. So I don't mean to, to I, like, I want to make sure that the diversity of Indigenous peoples across what is now Canada is honoured. But at the same time, I see a lot of these processes following similar, you know, if you want to call them benchmarks or, or, mm-hmm. or um, uh, patterns, I guess is the better word. And so for me, um, you know, when I've, when I've talked to John Sandlos or Arne Keeling, um, uh, different it, Brittany Luby certainly her book resonated a great deal, even though you know that's a, a different 
a different process that's going on um, in her territory. So what I'm what I'm struck by is the continued um, marginalization of Indigenous people through these processes, uh, and and in fact, it's 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 the um, the erasure I think of Indigenous presence in these areas as well, even the, or the attempts of at least in in terms of thinking about people. Uh, indigenous people are not at the forefront of of uh, the settler mindset when it comes to these processes, and so um, and so I, I think that that is key then to why a lot of these these gains, economic gains, if you want to think of them that way from from an economic perspective, are so short lived, and it's because I think we still see a lot of these territories as being hinterlands to larger settler communities in uh, the the. I'll say the Canadian South, I guess, or urban areas in, in <laughs> Canada. Um, and, and, and I think that's key to this is that um, there, there, there isn't a sense that these are homelands um, mm-hmm. there. And, and I think that that goes beyond, you know, a world v- view clashing, which is certainly a big part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it goes uh, to settler colonialism in in general, which is, you know, a, a short-term gain in a, in a territory that it, that is not one's own. Yeah, and it and it seems to sort of cloud ecological thinking too. That if 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 for the companies and the governments involved, these are not places that people live, then they seem very clearly not to consider the relationship between poisoning the water, poisoning the animals, and then poisoning the people. Um, so you you also connect this story to a, a global context, uh, and you use the term Cold War colonialism. Uh, to describe um, this history, can you explain uh, to listeners what what this means and how it applies to this this case study? So I wanted to find a phrase that adequately captured the patterns that I was seeing in this case study. Um, so at the time that I and and, and I'll co- contextualize this with at, at the time that I wrote this primary phase of the project, this this was my dissertation, and so um, we're talking about you know two thousand and six, you know mm-hmm. mid mid uh, aughts, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and and so a lot of the historical literature up to that point in Canada. Uh, about Indigenous peoples was focused on earlier time periods. Um, and and if that, of course, has changed now, as we've mm-hmm. talked about uh, the historians just in, in the last few questions. Um, but I was seeing that despite these changes to the Indian Act in 1951, the federal franchise for Indigenous people, or for status Indians specifically in 1960, and the general historical na- narratives uh, that were popular at the time, uh, that subsequent historians have also critiqued, but seeing the 1960s as this time of decolonization, a watershed decade in Canadian history, that didn't line up with, with what I was seeing in my own community's history. And mm-hmm. so in particular, I was seeing that this larger geopolitical process or these forces like the Cold War um, influenced extraction on our territory um, and, and and but these were experienced at a at, at a very local and intimate level of homeland, and so mm-hmm. the extraction was tied to uh, you know uh, as I've said before federal contracts, um, but also provincial economic development and even the establishment of a settler town that didn't exist before the Cold War. So we have all of these different levels of government that are involved. Um, but the extraction further marginalized Serpent River First Nation. And it was facilitated by these colonial forces, um, like the Indian Act, the reserve system, Indian Affairs as a bureaucratic uh, controlling uh, department, mm. and various levels of government that prioritized economic development over um, Indigenous wellness. Mm-hmm. 
and it and it further complicates i think the the narrative of canadian as well as western history for the post-war period is a period of economic boom or prosperity um demonstrating the the ways in which that was inequitably distributed and the inequitable impacts of economic activity um so the title of the book uses the term resurgence uh, a reference to the resilience of the Serpent River First Nation in its resistance to encroachment on its territories and the degradation of the environment. Um, how did the Serpent River First Nation fight back, resist, and seek restitution for the environmental damage that was caused by mining activity in the 20th century? So first of all, thank you for for asking that question, because it was one of my favorite parts of this work and one of the reasons why I came to this project in the first place. So, um, and it was seeing and hearing these stories in, uh, in, at, you know, at the community level, at the family level and, mm -hmm. and hearing about, um, you know, activism, uh, political activism. And so, uh, my grandmother had been involved in, uh, in, in some of these, uh, fights in the in the late 1970s into the 80s and so this was something that i these were stories i had grown up with um, mm -hmm. and then i later explored them as an historian but these were it was a familiar story to me um and so uh i'll give you a few examples of uh of this resistance uh, that that appear in the book as well so in the late 1960s uh to begin with we see chief bill mawasagi who used local media to call attention to the remains of the acid plant so this was before the 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 uh, blow up that we had talked about earlier mm -hmm. in the, the, that that military operation um but after the company had pulled out and so he actually uh, brought in the local newspaper, the LA Lake Standard, to witness what was going on, uh, and and um, and and framed it actually as an eyesore, which I think was really uh, it, it was, um, but also I think it was um, a savvy use of of local media as well, because he was able to demonstrate, like, look, this is something, this is a message we're sending at the side of the Trans Canada Highway that is highly mm -hmm. visible to people coming in um, when you know. Part one of the other industries or or um, economic development uh, businesses, I guess you could say, uh, is tourism. So mm -hmm. you know he's he's pointing to uh, to this, uh, I guess, um, juxtaposition between an abandoned acid plant and and trying to get people into the area for fishing. Um, and so we can see that kind of resistance that that uh, that he was using then. And then in the 1970s, um, there were discussions that arose about the potential to expand uh, uranium mining at Elliott Lake. And uh, members of Serpent River First Nation attended environmental assessment board hearings to voice their concerns against this, saying, you know, our lived experience with uranium mining is very different. We didn't see the prosperity in the same way that the, the town did. Um, that uh, they're vocal about their experiences uh, with uranium mining and uh, drew attention to the river pollution as a result of mining activities um, and also uh, the the impacts of the former acid plant site and so they generally wanted a more cautious approach to development and actually you know got a, a seat at the table at those hearings to to talk about those issues um, again fighting back to you know what was really in the area a dominant narrative of economic prosperity that came as a result of of, extra, of uranium extraction um, and wanting another boom uh, to mm -hmm. go forward. So um, being that one of those lone voices who had uh, who had concerns about, you know, the how quickly this this was going to happen again. 
And then finally, in the late 1980s, we see uh, that uh, chief and council uh, still are, are left with uh, the results of uh, the the military operation that blew that the acid plant over a larger surface area, and it still had not been cleaned up. Um, obviously, you might uh, people might be un- able to understand the frustration uh, mm-hmm. that that people in the community were feeling as a result of of this um, uh, of, of just being left uh, with this mess. And so the um, leaders from the community were making presentations to government officials, standing committees, uh, and and the media were invited to see the issue for themselves. And some politicians. Uh, uh, settler politicians notice that this kind of contamination would not have been allowed anywhere else in Canada. So there's an awareness of, or a growing awareness um, by this time of what we would call now environmental racism, mm-hmm. um, that this is this is happening and allowed to happen in a reserve because it is, uh, you know, a, a, an Indigenous community and not a, a settler community. Um, and at the community level, we see members engaged in other forms of activism as well. So, uh, namely, one of my favorites is uh, that they positioned a, a large sign at the side of the highway um, that that had quite a long quote, but they dedicated the site uh, to the Department of Indian Affairs <laughs> um, for the, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but the relentless pursuit uh, of good on, on our behalf, uh, which mm-hmm. obviously is a, as a tongue in cheek, biting commentary on the colonial relationship as, as Serpent River First Nation uh, residents had experienced that uh, at the hands of Indian Affairs. Um, and was there, there was also an episode where they, they took debris from the site and put it on the side of the road? Yep. And yeah. lit fire to it. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and these are, are uh, sort of happening ar- around the same time. And so, uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. This is a, you know, this is activism at the community level. Um, and as one elder told me, this happened while uh, some of the leaders were actually in a meeting um, I- with government officials trying to say this is a really serious issue. And, mm-hmm. and sure enough, you know, this was what was going on uh, at home. And so it brought national attention to this longstanding problem. Canadians were faced with the reality of, of uh, environmental racism uh, and the legacies of extraction um, in the middle of what is now Canada. And I think mm-hmm. that that was, uh, that was largely effective because it also resulted in uh, action. It didn't take very long then at that point for the federal government to uh, to provide money for for another round of cleanup. And and it seems, too, that uh, during this process toward the late 20th century, um, women leaders in the community take a prominent role um, in what is a, I guess, sovereignty activism and environmental activism here. Um, is this is this is this something you notice then that there's like a particular role that women end up playing in this case study, and does that connect to traditions of activism within the community? What I what I found was uh, the women like my grandmother Gertrude Lewis, uh, Lorena Lewis, who was chief uh, at one point um, during the environmental assessment board hearings, uh, Betty Jacobs. Um, are, um, the, these were uh, women, among others, but uh, these were women who were, yeah, who were uh, politically active. Um, other women who were active in in other political ways uh, too in the community, like um, the resurgence of of traditions and so on, and the protection of traditions. And 
And so I, I, what I saw as uh, men and women working together um, very, very effectively um, at uh, the community leadership level to, to get answers uh, about, uh, about these issues. Um, Lorena Lewis was our first uh, female chief uh, in the community. Um, she also had an all-women council at one point. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, that definitely framed... Certainly, my grandmother being who she was helped frame who I saw, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, as an example, uh, and and uh, my responsibilities um, as an Anishinaabekwe. And so I think that that was um, that was a big part of the story as well. Um, and 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 chiefs like uh, Earl Commanda and Peter Johnson um, working with women in the community as well to <laughs> um, to to find answers to these uh, to these questions. And the narrative in your book ties this uh, late 20th century activism nicely to a much longer tradition of land protection and water protection, and particularly these episodes in the early 20th century. Could you tell us a bit about like the uh, the timber licensing as a kind of precursor to the mining in the mid 20th century? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the lumber lease was uh, so. In the late 19th century, uh, timber extraction becomes uh, an important um, uh, economic development pursuit mm-hmm. in, in northern or the near northern Ontario. I call it northern Ontario, mm-hmm. but um, it's that's there's still more north. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. North Shore of Lake Huron, um, and uh, in Michigan and and territories, uh, um, you know, around there, and so. Mm-hmm. Lumber becomes important, and uh, there is a tradition of um, of uh, timber companies coming in uh, and leasing land, and and sort of they they take over those le- subsequent companies take over those leases, um, and that's one of the biggest uh, contributing factors to uh, the colonial nature of the the acid plant. And because what happened was, as uh, one lease uh, expired, uh, and or actually it became clear that it was actually a land uh, purchase, although that was not clear to community members. And that's one of the things that I, I outline in the book. Um, anyway, the, the community brought, bought the land back um, using band funds, and it was never actually returned uh, in accordance with the Indian Act to the community uh, in the way that it should have been, um, even under Indian Affairs and, and Ottawa legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that actually allows Indian Affairs then in, by the 1950s to say, oh, well, this actually was never returned properly. We can land, lease this land back to, um, to Naranda. Um, and so this is this is one of the the really problematic aspects of it. And when we're talking about extraction is tied to colonialism, mm-hmm. um, this is one of those prime examples. And it, but it is part or, a part of a larger tradition of leasing land, not just in in uh, at Serpent River First Nation, but this is a you know something that has happened in other communities as well, where land is leased um, and uh, and that becomes a precursor then to dispossession. Yeah, it ties together a lot of the case studies for other First Nations communities across Canada that have similar, I guess, administrative experiences with the Canadian government, um, among other other components to the story that you tell uh, here as well. Um, and 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 calling back to that earlier episode, I mean, it's directly connected what ends up happening with the mining, but it also illustrates. Um, an unbroken continuity uh, in the history uh, for the community and its role in asserting sovereignty rights and protection of land um, and water. 
this is not necessarily shifting gears, but this is a question for the historians listening in the audience. Um, <laughs> as a historian, you've got a, a whole suite of sources that you're using here in this book, um, and you're integrating uh, oral history um, research with documentary evidence as well. So I wonder if you can tell us how you approach that, um, how you balance those two types of sources and what they each brought to your analysis of, of the story that you tell in, in this book. Yeah, so just to, to start, um, the reality of archival research in Canada, uh, especially when dealing with Indian Affairs records, so RG10 primarily in my case, is that these records are kept by government agents with uh, their own particular views of Indigenous peoples, usually negative, um, who are trying to change, you know, who Indigenous people are, how we live our lives. Um, and so I ha you have to dig to to sort of find indigenous perspectives, um, which I was able to do in some cases. Um, it, but uh, I think one thing that I would like listeners to keep in mind is that these are government records that detail our colonial relationship and the destruction of our home territories. And the story, therefore, um, necessitated documentary evidence, certainly, but also uh, oral history as well to get a sense of what that lived experience was like. Um, and so I noted in the introduction that some parts of the story are were more easily told uh, through documents. So, for instance, when uh, trying to talk about the, the devastation of the watershed, I used government um, correspondence quite mm -hmm. a bit. Um, and then also through oral history, which demonstrated the lived experience of what those numbers meant in those memoranda, right? So mm -hmm. what, what, what did rising rates of radioactivity mean for Indigenous peoples uh, in terms of being able to relate to the territory and relate to the land? Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes... Uh, um, oral history, especially when talking about the resilience uh, of of indigenous peoples, uh, was uh, was through oral history, and that often pointed me towards um, newspaper articles as well, where I could see um, you know quotes from from our chiefs through various time periods, being able to uh, to to um, send those messages in very public ways, um, but so still being able to get a sense of what indigenous voices uh, and and experiences uh, were bringing to bear on this discussion. And so um, one example that I, I thought was, when, when you're talking about the relationship between these two sources, mm -hmm. very different, obviously, when they come from different traditions, uh, they come from different cultures. Um, but uh, one of the, the, an example of the, of, you know, using documentary evidence and oral history together was one elder who was able to recount exactly what the Naranda lease had said from memory. Mm -hmm. He had talked like he was drawing on that lease in his oral history interview. Um, and I had not yet seen that lease um, because I, it was in a different area. I had to go searching for it and it wasn't where I thought it was going to be. And I thought that that was immensely impressive uh, mm -hmm. to, to have to have that um, to have that elder have that that um, just intimate knowledge of, of what was going on, uh, because he had been fighting so long to be able to have that um, that that story um, re reconciled in a lot of ways to to have that the the acid plant site cleaned up to draw attention to the river pollution um, that that was that was impressive and moving and uh, and I think one of the biggest learning pieces for myself as an historian. So. 
I mean, there's so much I want to say about this book. I think it's really important. Um, and, and all of the new scholarship that's coming out on 20th century Indigenous history in what's now Canada um, is adding so much to our understanding of the period after the Second World War, um, but also to our understanding of um, uh, changing ideas about the environment and environmentalism. Um, and, and in some important ways, disrupting, I think, the narratives about in, the histories of environmentalism in North America. Um, and I wonder if, if you see this in the same way, but, but were uh, Indigenous peoples in this community um, being activated to think about the environment and their homelands as part of a broader environmental movement? Or were Indigenous peoples leading um, and pressing and changing the way that settlers thought about the environment. Um, because in this case here, as opposed to, say, um, the Mackenzie Valley gas pipeline hearings, where you have southern settler environmental groups trying to get involved with an, an environmental activist movement with Indigenous people, but there are no settler environmental groups at play here. Some of the tourist associations, I guess, are concerned, um, but this seems to be primarily led by Serpent River First Nation. Yeah, and and from from my understanding of of the the from the oral history and also some of the the newspaper evidence is that when there were when there was an outside group, um, it was actually the um, the National Indian Brotherhood, so the the mm -hmm. the forerunner to the Assembly of First Nations that became involved to to assist in terms of um, the the I think the approaches to uh, to activism and to, for pressing for for uh, remediation, and so yeah, it's not. Um, in some cases, yes, the tourism operators are, are helpful. They, they see the same problems. Um, and also uh, union um, uh, leadership also see uh, from the mining companies uh, see, see environmental devastation and also safety as being tied together. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there, there are um, uh, relationships that are built that way. Um, but I think uh, that the biggest one that that came through for me was the Assembly of First Nations when we're talking about outside organizations. And so uh, it, to me, seems incredible, like, you know, uh, Indigenous-led. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and um, I think... I think some of the reporters perhaps uh, were influenced in terms of their questions and perhaps their empathy uh, for the story by larger environmental movements. But, but I really see this as, as an Indigenous story that is Indigenous-led. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and increasingly, at least for for historians of Canada, there just there just isn't any way to think about environmentalism as a phenomenon in the 20th century without situating Indigenous activism at the center of the environmental movement in Canada. Um, and more and more of these case studies, I think, are emphasizing that point and showing the ways in which environmental impact assessment review processes were influenced and shaped by Indigenous activism um, and weren't necessarily leading processes for rethinking our relationship with nature. Um, I guess uh, the last question here is about the current, uh, the current state of things, uh, the waters and the lands of Serpent River First Nation. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what the conditions look like today? So I, I can share that the acid site is still a problem uh, and, and the land has uh, limited use. So there have been several studies uh, undertaken by the community, paid for by the community to be able to get a sense of what that land could be used for and, and to what extent it has been damaged. And so and also uh, because I mentioned it is on the side of arid 
uh, bay, um, the what is the relationship also between the land and the water and, at that particular site. And mm -hmm. so um, th this is not a site where you will be able to build houses or or be able to use it for purposes uh, in that way. And so, um, and again, it's it's in the middle of the community. And so this is something, the, the rocks, um, some of them are still red. You can see the, the residue still on them, uh, which are you know, a testament to the legacy that is ongoing. Um, in terms of the watershed, that is still being monitored and assessed. So there are annual reports that have to be submitted uh, to the Canadian Nuclear Safety uh, Commission by Denison and Rio Algom, who still uh, do assessment in, in this area. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that speaks to the perpetual care that will still need to remain in place forever to monitor and protect this this watershed and and you know to to talk about the the interviews again the elders i interviews underscored uh, and understood that this was paramount to to wellness in the in our homeland and that they were concerned about what this meant for the future of the community and the land they were concerned about um technologies that were human made and their capacity to hold you know, water if it's contaminated, the impact that 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 would have on the watershed if anything were to happen um, uh, to to those dams uh, or to the technologies that kept those tailings management sites in place. And so, this is something that um, is is will forever be a concern for our community because that is still um, what what we're left with, and that's the the reality of the situation is that those mines have been closed for decades now, and we're still we're still waiting and watching and making sure um, that we can, that, 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 that water is, is, um, is still there. And for listeners who want to read the full history here and get the full story, learn more uh, about uh, Elliot Lake, uh, Serpent River. Uh, the book is Serpent River Resurgence, Confronting Uranium Mining at Elliot Lake from University of Toronto Press. Uh, Leanne, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about your book. And I hope that uh, listeners go out to uh, better booksellers and get a copy. Thank you so much, Miigwech. Uh, thank you for having me. Nature's Past is produced in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabek Nation. The current treaty holders are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and the territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. This show is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Leanne Letty and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And if you want to support this podcast and Niche, you can make a donation at niche-canada.org support. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. <laughs>